Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 199 of the Spoiler Alert podcast brought to you by MovieOutsiders.com. I'm Danny, and I'm here with Mike, and tonight we'll be wrapping up the 2017 Best Picture nominees with Call Me By Your Name, starring Army Hammer. Mike, how are you doing tonight? <laughs> I'm, I'm doing great, buddy. Episode 199. This is a huge milestone for us. Why did that get a laugh? <laughs> You like you, you mentioned one person in in the movie, and I and he's not the one nominated for an Oscar. I could have said Michael Stuhlbarg. I, you you could have. There were there were others as well. But anyway, yeah. I this is a big this is a big episode for us. Episode one ninety nine. You don't get any bigger than that. We have to date not gotten any higher than this number. You're right. <laughs> right. Well, so we we're getting this in under the wire. The Academy Awards are this weekend, the 90th uh, Academy Awards. By the end of this episode, we can officially say that we've reviewed another Best Picture. We don't know what Correct. it'll be, but we have definitely done it unmistakably, yes. We know it won't be this episode. <laughs> um, I think that's safe to say, but, you know, before we get too into it, I wanted to say, I, I read a, a funny article someone sent me the other day. And it was it wasn't from the Onion, but it was something like that about how the Academy Award has changed the name of the awards from the Oscars to the Jessies in order to be gender neutral and more approachable. <laughs> and the article's all about the hashtag Me Too moment oh, and how they're they're oh. trying some other like non gender conforming names. <laughs> oh no! Like the Chris's and you know, just Jans or something. And it says at uh, the end oh, of the. Uh, dear. It was just a great article. If you can find it, the Jessies. Uh, I think this weekend <laughs> is my first, my my nineteenth annual Oscar party and my first annual Jessies party, uh, which I'm looking forward <laughs> yeah. to. Well, and the Jesse goes to, and the Jesse goes to. You know, um, there's always a, a lot of fun articles written about movies and about the Academy, uh, the week leading up to the Academy Awards, uh, and this year's no. Uh, exception, the Wall Street Journal had a really interesting article, a number of them actually, about the Academy Awards this week. But I thought one that was was really powerful it was called, and the best picture Oscar goes to something you probably haven't seen. <laughs> and I thought it was a really interesting article because the article states that between 1983 and the year 2005, every single best picture winner from one of those years, was among the 25 highest grossing movies of that year. Right. Sometimes it was in the top five, sometimes the highest uh, grossing movie of the year. Some big movies, Titanic, Forrest Gump, Rain Man, the Took Home Best Picture, Big Crowd Pleasers, sort of part of the national conversation broadly. And then in 2005, Crash won. And Crash finished that year's box office at number 49. And since then... Only four of the last 12 have been in the top 25, mm-hmm. and none of them have been higher than the 15th highest box office for the year. Right? Isn't that a stunning, not only set of statistics, but just th- that what a marked change that was, uh, a divergence from sort of crowd-pleasing, populist entertainment that's well-made to there's movies for people and there's movies for the Academy. Yeah, absolutely it has. And, and I think that we're going to see... A change again soon, though I don't know how closely it will tie to bigger box office hits becoming the best pictures. But, I mean, think of some of the best pictures we've reviewed from 
from yesteryear and the days of yore. I mean, these are some real dog <laughs> movies that won <laughs> Best Picture because they were huge box office draws. My Fair yeah. Lady, Around the World in 80 Days, movies that... I mean, we ultimately just couldn't stand, and we can argue with anybody over whether or not they stand the test of time, but how many people do you know that have seen Around the World in 80 Days? That It's it's just not that kind of film. Now, you know, at the time of Crash, right. that we were starting to see kind of a swell. I mean, that that was a weird year, too, because there was a lot of anti-Brokeback Mountain sentiment going on. But then shortly thereafter, right. we introduced the preferential ballot, which has changed the way that Best Picture is awarded by the Academy. And in the last few years, they greatly expanded the number of Academy members. They they ex- they extended invitations to tons more people that were not previously members. And I think that's changed the way people have voted. Like that that whole Bourne ultimatum getting a Best Editing Oscar a couple years ago when it... I mean, best editing typically goes to a best picture nominee, at least. And, right. and I, th- I think we're just seeing, we're going to see some weird stuff happening in the next decade. I think that there's going to be a lot of statistics of previous Oscar years that will be broken this year and in the next few years. But you're right. The, artic- the article was fascinating. The, the days of awarding the big sweeping epic are no longer. If that were the case, Dunkirk would be a lock for tomorrow. Well, and Dunkirk is the 14th biggest movie of 2017 from the domestic box office. So it would crack the top 15. The other sort of front runners at three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri is 55th. The Shape of Water was 49th. And Get Out was 15th. The one exception, and I didn't look into this, excuse me, is the best animated feature. Coco is actually the 13th largest. Okay. Best picture, and I'll wager that the best animated feature is normally in the top twenty-five, just Probably, given the audience. Yeah, right. So that's not surprising. But you know, some of the other movies. I mean, think about Moonlight, which won last year. How many people do you know that still haven't seen Moonlight? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. That 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 never saw it before. It won the Academy Award. That it won the Academy Award, and that was still wasn't enough to prompt them to go sit and sit through it. Right. I mean. I do wonder if at some point we will reach a, a tipping point back where Hollywood starts to make the type of entertainment and support and promote the types of entertainment that more people want to go see outside of a Fast and Furious or a comic book movie sure. or an animated film. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we lamented all the time on the podcast. I just had not seen it so starkly written and such a clear dividing line of you know the pre and post crash sort of impact of the Academy Awards. Yeah, it was a great article, and we'll we'll need a link to it in the uh, show notes. That'd be great. Hey, um, so before we uh, get into this night, uh, this week's episode, are there any awards or nominees that you think are just a lock that are going to take home? You want to make any bold predictions? Well, if I think it's a lock, it's not a bold prediction. I, I think that I think that Gary Oldman's a lock. I think that he is absolutely going to win an Oscar for Best Actor. Everything about this year seems a little weird, and I think that a month ago I would have said Sir Ronan's a lock, and I don't think that she is a- at all anymore. No. I, I, I think she's probably not going to win to the woman who does not give a f- And I, I would say the other the other lock is, I think, Coco. 
you know, yep. best animated feature can surprise sometimes, and of course, we don't have like any... when you chose Triplets of Belleville, <laughs> it was Finding Nemo. I know. Could you believe that? Could you believe that? Big surprise I, to you, right? I think, uh, yeah, I, I think that Coco has probably got it. Other than that, I don't know that I'm too sure on anything. I mean, everything I read says Alice and Janney for sure, but. I, I guess I, I wouldn't put a million dollars on it. I, I, I guess yeah. I'm not going to go any further than that, except to say I'm shocked that what I would call the best picture frontrunner going into Oscar weekend is probably three billboards, which is the weirdest thing I've ever uttered. I, I would not have guessed that after watching all nine nominees this year in a hundred years that I would be saying that's, that's, I guess the front runner going into the weekend. It is very strange. And again, I think it reinforces the point from this article of there are movies that people enjoy movies. People can get behind. And then there's the movies that Hollywood wants to feel like are the right types of movies for it to make. Yeah. And it does feel a little bit like three billboards falls in that camp along with some of the others. You picked the same, um, Two locks that I would have, Gary Oldman and Coco. You mentioned Allison Janney. I also would say Guillermo del Toro, possibly for best director, feels pretty confident at this he's point. Gonna, he's, he's who I'm going to put on my ballot, but I guess, I, I, you know, going into the night, I'm not going to feel 100% confident about that. The other lock is that it's going to be a weird award ceremony. Yeah. It's going to get political. It's going to be hashtag me too. It's going to be anti-Trump. And that's going to turn off a lot of people. So, I mean, it's just like, you know, going into it, it's going to be kind of an awkward night. But one thing that I read today, I was really excited about uh, Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway are going to present the Best Picture Oscar again oh, this year. Oh, great. <laughs> so they're getting a do-over. With Steve Harvey. Right. That would be fantastic. And, of course, they, they just open the envelope and say La La Land. <laughs> and then there's a big laugh and a collective. And then they get on it. Anyway, well, let's get let's turn our attention back uh, to one, one last nominee from 2017. Why don't you give us a tight plot recap of Call Me By Your Name, which ranks as the 114th top grossing domestic movie at last year's box office. At the, at the time of recording, right? Like, I mean, it's still making money now. Like, tonight, it, there's people seeing it, I bet. In a theater and paying? <laughs> I don't know about that. Check your papers. Give us a plot recap. So Call Me By Your Name is the story of Elio, a teenage boy living with his family in Italy in the early 1980s. His father, an archaeologist, invites Oliver, an American graduate student, to live with them for the summer and be his father's assistant. The two soon begin to have feelings for each other and slowly let their relationship develop, despite each showing outward attraction to women. As the summer nears its end, the relationship ends in a sad goodbye, and Elio is later rocked with the news of Oliver's engagement and that they will never be together again. And that's Call Me By Your Name. Did I keep that one tight enough? We're... That is the, mo- the most succinct plot you. recap you've ever had I, I don't know should we just like let a minute or two of like awkward silence go by we'll keep for anyone the, who like keep the music playing someone set their phone down and like went to get a cup of coffee because <laughs> they figured they had some time they're using the restroom and getting the mail and they're gonna come right back in so should we just wait for them they didn't want a spoiler to come up <laughs> <laughs> so so that's call me by your name the 114th was it the 114th top box office movie there the right. 114th that's right. the all of the Best Picture nominees are within the top 115 box office uh, <laughs> this, hitters last yeah, year. Right. What was your initial reaction? How would you feel about the movie? I liked the movie. 
I enjoyed it. Um, plenty that I disliked about it or just couldn't get behind. But overall, I thought that it was a well-made film that I was happy to have seen. Okay. How about you? I thought this was truly a chore. And if I was not watching it for the podcast, I would have turned it off or left. Okay. I was terribly and achingly bored oh. through, through all of it. Okay. All right. It didn't move me. I wasn't Oh, wow. Interested. All right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just bad. Not bad. I mean, it was well made, I guess. Like, it was pretty and well acted. And well, tell me something you liked about it then. Let's start there. I did like the look of the film. So the sort of sun-drenched uh, Italian town yeah. in which they, they live it certainly seems like a, a bit of an Eden. And um, I thought it was well photographed. And the the closing scene with Michael Stuhlberg uh, between uh, father and son really was a very beautiful scene. Mm-hmm. Like that one scene I thought was worth sticking through the movie, but just barely. Oh. And I wish I could have just fast forwarded to it. Oh, okay. All right. Well, yeah. but, but is, I, I, I guess I disagree with the fact that you could have just fast forwarded to it. I feel like it was the two hours prior that made it such a great scene. I feel like you, you had to have felt some heartache in order to truly appreciate that dialogue. But I, I get your point. I mean, it was, it was the, it was the apex of emotional acting in the film, and. And up until then had been a lot of day to day. So I, I get exactly what you're saying. And you already hit my my top two things that I loved about the movie and would say that I liked about it. I think that this movie was like a, a Valentine to Italy. I, I thought that it was so gorgeously shot. And it's just another one of those movies that makes me so badly want to go to another place. Like Lost in Translation made me really want to see Tokyo. And, and you know, before before midnight made me want to go to Europe and before sunset made me want to go to Europe. And this was just another one of those movies that I think is, is so gorgeous in the little details of the town that, that it's showing and the culture there that it, it really, it sucked me in from the get go. What else did you like? Anything else you like about it? So, I mean, you mentioned one of the final scenes there, the end closing credit scene, I thought was another bit of gut wrenching acting by Timothy Chalamet, who you, who plays Elio and who you didn't mention in the opening of our episode, who's an Oscar nominee. He's an Oscar nominee. I purposely did not say I'm uh, out of spite because I hate the way he spells his name. Oh, with the two E's at the end? With the T-H-E-E? Is that how he spells it? That's yeah. sort of obnoxious. A little pretentious. Yeah. yeah. So he's, in a couple, he's in a couple of the other Oscar-nominated films, isn't he? Was he in Lady Bird or something else? He was in Lady Bird. Okay. Yeah, I, he I don't plays remember. The, the guy who who took Lady Bird's virginity. Got it. it. turns out okay. he wasn't a, a virgin. Right. Right. Okay. Yes. All right. So Michael Stuhlbarg, by the way, is in two of the other Best Picture nominees. He's in The Post and The Shape of Water. But I also like that final scene, too. It's it's the closing credit scene where, it, I mean, you just see every emotion wash over this man's, this young man's face as he's just learned that the man he was in love with is, in fact, engaged to a woman in the United States. They're never going to be together again. Probably won't see each other again. And and in the, in the final five minutes, in the credits, you just, you, you see his face for the whole five minutes. He's He's crying. He's sort of laughing. You can tell he's remembering the times that they had. He's 
Every, you, you just watch their relationship flash over his face in five minutes, and I thought, wow, that was really impressive. It was it was worth sitting through the final credits for that. I turned the credits off after uh, halfway through. <laughs> I was so bored. So you I haven't also, seen the movie. You haven't even seen the, the whole movie. Yeah, I better right. start the whole thing over. I, you know, I, I really didn't feel that Elio and Oliver had any chemistry. So, you know, a lot has been made about this being sort of a, a homosexual coming of age story and this blossoming, you know, romantic relationship. And I just felt like they, it felt like for much of the movie, they didn't like each other at all. Like they overtly were hostile to one another at times. And then Elio sort of pined for Oliver, I guess, who treated him poorly and just acted like he didn't care. Yeah. I did not get the sense that this was some grand romantic blossoming lovely relationship that you could kind of get swept up in i just felt like these two people don't seem to care for each other very much and i don't know why i'm investing any effort in whether or not they get together even for the briefest of trysts over the summer i just i really was kind of befuddled and even when they were trying to connect physically and maybe some of this is is the acting and is intentional but the way that Timothy uh, who plays Elio <laughs> would sort of attack Army Hammer, like kind of like jump on him. And it was like like climbing on him, like climbing a tree. It was always very awkward physically. And maybe, again, he's a young man. He's never been with a man. He doesn't know what to do. But it just felt like just weird. At every, every choice they could make, I felt with if there was a weird choice to make, they took that one. And I just didn't, I couldn't get into it. I, I guess I got the sense that Neither of them knew quite what to do to actually act upon what they were feeling. And so I took all of that weird, odd awkwardness to be them just not knowing how to how how to act around one another. I think the thing about their relationship that bothered me the most was just how it was it just sort of meandered forever like it was just a long time of them taking a lot of bike rides they you know they go to the pharmacy they go to the store they go to the record shop they go here they like it's just the two of them riding around europe and it made me want to see italy but i didn't quite get what was happening with them for a long long time and so i feel like when you're asking me to invest two and a half hours into a movie take me somewhere and for a long time it didn't take you anywhere well, and and this movie takes place over a period of six weeks. That's how long Oliver was staying with the family. And I wrote, this movie feels like it was the whole summer and it was shot in real time. Because it was just so boring. And there were so many of those little scenes and so many scenes of them laying in the grass or swimming again or laying by a pool again or sitting in a chair eating fruit again and honestly at like the 35 minute mark i was like how like it's almost over right this is a two hour and 12 minute movie and i thought i'm almost done and i still had an hour and a half left to go (laughs) yeah it was brutal and it doesn't let up i mean there are and i get i get you know this is an adaptation of a book apparently it's a very well you know um uh well received and well regarded book and maybe it's really well written on the page i just didn't I just couldn't get into it from a film standpoint. It was just too boring. Um, it, it, all the scenes, all the scenes felt the same. Uh, so uh, another thing that I disliked to that point about scenes feeling the same: there are a million scenes where they're having dinner 
or lunch outside at a picnic table in a different location outside their little villa. And I think that it's almost arranged too perfectly. Like, I just couldn't buy that they were having lunch outside while dad's working and mom's working. And yet on the picnic table, there's, you know, a bowl of fruit and a glass pitcher of water with cucumber in it and like it's just like no I, I couldn't I couldn't believe that this is the way every day is like we we can barely all four sit down together for dinner half the time throughout the week so how every meal becomes this elaborate ordeal with eggs in their own little containers for everybody at the table is it it was almost too perfect like every scene needs to be a production piece for this film well and they had a cook so i could kind of believe that but they had a cook and it seemed like a caretaker and then one other person i thought who's paying for all these people he's like a, a yeah professor um, one of the thing that just honest, honestly, it bothered me is because all those scenes felt the same and our lives, everyone's life is so busy these days. It actually, by the end, made me mad to watch a movie about two people who had absolutely nothing to do. Like, yeah, you know, how nice it would be to, for like one moment for like one day to just lay in the grass and take a nap can you even imagine <laughs> let alone every freaking day and then you or wake just up wait, and like, wake up and be like oh you know what we should do is go for a swim like oh that's weird because i had this day planned two weeks ago to the minute yeah right it's right. so obnoxious and and what the is oliver doing there like isn't he there to he be his assistant works. but he just around all the time he never works no work gets done yeah what is up with that what is up also when oliver shows up very beginning of the movie he he travels to Italy. He shows up at the house. He meets the family. Within three minutes of his arrival, he collapses on a bed and falls asleep. Yeah. A, that's horrifically rude. And B, have you ever been that tired at the end of a trip <laughs> that you would come in and meet the people with whom you're going to be living and working and you just – you can't even stay conscious for 240 seconds? You can't have a glass seconds? of wine with them or something. Like, you're just, you're just out, out. You're just done. terrible. What's up with – is there – have you seen anything, anything – more disgusting than watching Army Hammer eat that soft-boiled egg or two at breakfast that day. That was the most revolting thing. Have you ever eaten a soft-boiled egg in your life? I have not. No, I have not either, but I will one-up you, and it is, it's the fruit scene. Oh, that was disgusting. Now, too, this yeah. fruit scene, again, maybe in the book, plays well on the page. The whole fruit scene, I was like, you gotta be kidding me. No, no, don't do it. They did it, and actually wrote my notes. If anyone eats that peach, I am out of here. And by God, Army Hammer was trying to eat the peach. In the book, he eats the peach. In the movie, he does not. In the book, he does eat it? In the book, he does. I, I read that afterwards, yes. I did not read the book, but I read that the character well, eats the peach, yes. That beats the soft-boiled egg. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it does. And it's shocking that people are okay with that, I think, because I feel like either years ago, that would not have been okay... Or if a if a woman ate the peach these days, wouldn't people have a big issue with that? I, I think it's possible. I mean, think about the fact that we reviewed Midnight Cowboy, which was an X-rated film in the 1960s. Yet doesn't come within a country mile of some of the sexuality that we see here. What's up with the casting here? Because... So much has been made, of course, of the age difference between the two characters. And sure. the fact that, you know, it was... 
Was he able to consent, which in Italy, apparently he was. The age of consent in Italy is 14. Uh, Elio, played by Timothy Chalamet, is 17. Oliver, the character played by Army Hammer, is, I think, 23 or something like that. Somewhere in there, but, yeah. But Army Hammer looks like he's in his 30s, and Timothy Chalamet looks like he's 12. Or right. or younger. Like, I mean, they, they look like... Dra- this this is Kevin Spacey territory here. It's, oh. it's a little gross. It's a lot gross. Also, speaking of gross, what's up with Oliver's infected wound that he keeps talking Ooh, about yeah. and they keep showing? Right. If that's in the book, that's a weird plot point to keep around and for him to keep lifting his shirt to see his belly all infected. <laughs> that, that, what's up with that thing how- had to have smelled. For sure. Yeah. What's up with how much Oliver knows about the word apricot? That's one of those scenes where a character demonstrates their knowledge of an arcane subject to prove that they're smart or a good student or something, but is only in a book or a movie. Yeah. I, I wish the dad would have been like, you get an A+, plus, good job. Now tell me the you know, the origins of the word watermelon, right. smartass. <laughs> you, you don't yeah, know anything like, yet. Right. Like, it was so dumb. I was instantly annoyed. How, how about this? What's up with the two of them calling each other by their names? Was yeah. that was that the dumbest thing ever that's supposed to be romantic in a film ever? Like like the, why would why would they call each other by their names? Did did I miss something in the movie early where that was supposed to be touching or cute or or tender? Like I, I didn't understand why they would call each other the other person's names and then that was the name of the film and and a pivotal scene that also played into the final scene of the film as well. My first answer to your question is, I don't know. My question back to you is when you saw the movie, were there subtitles when someone was speaking French or Italian? Yes. Okay. The version that I saw had none. So anytime there was a conversation in French or Italian, I didn't get to, I didn't know what they were saying. So there, we, there are... we're going to have to re-record this podcast once you've, actually watch the film start to finish You're gonna make me with watch the dialogue Oliver. yes you have to what's up with the crazy italian woman dancing by her car near the end that was one of the weirdest dances and it was it was weirder but also cooler than army hammers dancing as oliver that was truly embarrassing but 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 it was exactly what i'd expect out of that guy which i thought made that a great scene and it was I just didn't get their love for the psychedelic fur. It's like we're we're talking about a pretty obscure '80s band at this point, but man, did that play prominently into this one? What's up with Elio vomiting during the scene with the woman's dancing, oh, and that yeah. we had to watch him vomit? Yeah, that was gross. And then they end up kissing hard on the mouth right yeah, after. Also gross. Yeah, I'm sorry. You know, someone pukes their their guts out. Let them brush your teeth first. <laughs> you're not that attractive. You're you're a lot less attractive to me now. Buddy, are you ready for five questions? Yes, unless the questions have anything to do with the dialogue that was in French or Italian. It's because all it's I'll, all of what we're talking about. I'll today. have to do a hard pass on those questions. <laughs> Question number one. Let's do submitted questions. Thank you, listeners. Question number one. Uh, Hammer and Chalamet both signed contracts prohibiting full frontal nudity despite the original screenplay calling for lots of it. Why is male nudity still such a taboo? Probably because the the male form is just gross. Okay. All right. 
Fair enough. Who wants to look at that? Question number two. I mean, not me. I look awesome, nude. I'm just saying everybody. I, I know. Really I know. I know. Bunch of gnarly, knotted yeah. ogres. It's... <laughs> Question number two. Why are films with white actors playing non-white characters accused of whitewashing, but films with straight actors playing gay characters not accused of straightwashing? I don't know. I, th- I think that's a fair question, and I also... I put it in the same category of there are several people who change a role from whether it's a black character or an Asian character to a white person, right? That's whitewashing. But yet there are often and continue to be calls for a black James Bond or a female James Bond instead of just saying, well, that's a white male character. Why don't we just come up with a black or female action hero right right or spy spy, so it's the same thing it's like the same people that would accuse somebody of whitewashing are often making that other argument so i just don't understand and i think the the straight washing is a is a fair question okay i I don't know question number three elio's father is an esteemed professor of archaeology do you think that's where elio got his love of old bones (laughs) oh jeez could be uh, Could be. Actually, right. let me ask you. Let me ask you this. So, Michael Stuhlberg at the end, the father. Yeah. He told. He tells his son. He tells Elio that he had the opportunity to have what Elio had once and missed his opportunity. Did you take that to mean he had the opportunity to have a a, a homosexual relationship, or he had the opportunity to have love? I I took the latter, and that and that made it harder to hear. Like, could could you imagine as as that kid hearing your father say, like, once I almost had the opportunity to have as special a relationship as you had, but I didn't. But now I have your mom and you. I have your mother. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's <laughs> that. I took the latter. So, okay. but but I I guess I appreciate the ambiguity of that moment, too, and not not knowing quite what was being said there, but the fact that the two of them could connect and completely understand what each other was going through. Sure. Uh, question number four. Uh, director Guadagnino. Is that how you say his name? Guadagnino? We don't fact check. Sounds right. Sounds good. Uh, he has suggested multiple sequels to this film and that they would mirror the different ages Elio and Oliver reconnect in the book. Do you think a series of movies similar to Link Letters before Trilogy would be successful? Well, they might not crack the top 115 box office... Uh, entries Did for Link the years in which they released. <laughs> like, I, I guess we... I, I can go back and check. Okay, well, we'll check we can go it. back and check. Yeah, uh, uh, become close to fact checking, but that might also satisfy my morbid curiosity. So it kind of crosses, sure, crosses that line. Uh, but I know that if there are sequels to this movie, I would never see them unless they're nominated for too... Best Picture next year, and then we oh. have to. <laughs> this one makes me like want to say we're even for all the. The, the action movies and comic book movies that make you watch. This, I don't know that this is a movie that I would have picked and suggested that you and I review, quite honestly. Would you see but, it again? Uh, I don't know about this one. This, You'd still uh, see Phantom Thread twice. Yeah, I, I, I preferred one. Phantom Thread over this one, oh. for sure, yeah. By the way, Phantom Thread was number 105 on the box okay. office right. charts Sounds last year. Alright. And question number five. Does this movie prove the old axiom you can't... S- you can't spell call me by your name without the letters N A M B L A. Oh 
You know what, listeners? There's just... That's not appropriate. I'm not going to answer that one. Thanks for the questions. Thanks for submitting them, but that's that's not good. Final thoughts. I just didn't enjoy the movie. It was well photographed and I guess well acted. I just didn't think it was well written or edited. And I thought it was exceptionally boring and not in any way romantic or moving. I thought that it was, it was one of those films that sort of transported me to another time, another place. I really want to see Italy... This movie made me more excited to see it. I thought that it looked beautiful. This is the second coming-of-age story that we've reviewed as Best Picture nominee this year. Right. And I think the other one did it way better. Right. All that said, I enjoyed the film. I doubt that I'll see it again. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, before we move on uh, to quickly talk about our next episode, we thought we'd just take, honestly, maybe one minute each and share 2017 sort of top movies yeah. And 2017's worst movies for I jot, each of us. I jotted down. Uh, I, I I didn't jot, jot down my worst, but uh, that that was a fumble on my part. I jotted down my top ten favorites of the year. So let's let's quick run through them. Let's do it. Number ten, The Insult, Academy Award nominee this weekend for foreign film. Loved it. Just wow, saw it okay. a week ago. Number nine, The Hero, uh, that oh, okay. I saw at the Wisconsin Film Festival. Uh, Sam Elliott, sure. Sam Elliott was fantastic in it. I really liked the movie. It hasn't gotten great reviews, but it was it was one of my favorite sits throughout the year. Eight was I, Tanya. Seven was Dunkirk, the movie that I saw twice oh, wow. in the theaters. Yeah. Uh, six, Wind River. Five, Brace Yourself, Buddy. Thor Ragnarok was my top favorite. Wow. Top five favorite movie of the Made year. Made the top five. Hello. Four was Lady Bird. Three was Shape of Water. Two, you're going to pants. My number two favorite movie of the year was The Greatest Showman. Oh. And my, my favorite was Molly's Game. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. great. How about you? Um, I, sorry, I didn't I didn't say my worst. I, sh- I should have come up with my worst. Now I can't think back. Can you remind me of my worst? Like, what, what did I... I'll start with my worst. So my I just did t- worst five. I did uh, the, the five worst... Worst movies of the year were American Assassin, Fate of the Furious, The Mummy. I haven't seen any of these. <laughs> Phantom Thread. Oh, buddy. And Mother. <laughs> I saw one of those and I liked it. So terrible. I, I can't share them with you. All right. Um, so I did a top five, although there's a three-way tie. Oh, okay. So th- the three-way tie for fifth is Thor Ragnarok which was tied with Spider-Man Homecoming, which was tied with Logan. Oh, so okay. Three, three comic book movies, but they were all, I thought, better than most comic book movies, and they all took like a decidedly different Great. swipe at the oh, genre. that's awesome, yeah. Uh, number four was The Big Sick. Okay. Number three was Dunkirk. Number two was The Shape of Water. And my number one pick for 2017 was Blade Runner 2049. Oh, wow, awesome. I all right. loved it. But I, I think those are great picks. I I can't dis, I didn't see uh, Spider Man, but I can't disagree with with anything else on there. Though those are those are excellent movies. Well, I agree. I did struggle with where to put uh, Molly's Game. I, I it, we we both liked it. Thought it was a, like a solid Aaron Sorkin outing, just not a not a fantastic Aaron Sorkin outing. I still look back at that film and think that that ice rink scene was just embarrassing. Like, I mean, yeah. that should not have happened in any movie ever 
But the rest of it was so compelling and interesting and fun. And it was a movie that I still think about and I'm excited to see again. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, coming up next, we're going to wrap up this weekend's Academy Awards and move right into an Academy Award winner. We got a Best Picture coming up. Kramer versus Kramer starring uh, a little-known actress named Meryl Streep. So look for that coming up next. One of the most overrated actresses of all time. Of all time. Thanks for listening to the Spoiler Alert Podcast. Please visit us online at movieoutsiders.com, where you can see what films we'll be discussing next, comment on our recent episodes, suggest movies to review or topics to discuss, or submit questions for the five questions segment of the podcast. Stop by and visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash movieoutsiders, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at movieoutsiders. If you're a fan of the show, we'd really appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast subscription service you use. We'll be back again next week with another episode, but until then, enjoy the movies.